Philippians 1, we return to the Word of God. I've titled this, The Gospel Behind Bars. And the text I want to draw you to is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Before I read it, just a little bit about Philippians. Uh, I often hear Christians say this is one of their favorite books. Um, Philippians is short and it's rich. And it's written by the Apostle Paul, probably around 61, 62 AD. And he writes to the church at Philippi. It was a church that uh, he helped to find, found there in Philippi uh, on his second missionary journey. And really, and you can read this in Acts 16, is you have the church begins with the conversion of a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple goods. It's amazing what God can do with one conversion. And this woman, Lydia, is saved when Luke and Paul come through town there to share the gospel. So Acts 16, 14, it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So so God, again, being sovereign, he's the one who even opens the eyes of the heart so that we can even pay attention to what the Word of God is. And he ended up saving Lydia there. She was baptized, and a local church began. Additional members there, it mentions, Luke mentions, a slave girl who was rescued from demon possession. And, of course, the, the famous Philippian jailer, who after the earthquake cried out, what must I do to be saved? And that was the beginning of a church in Philippi. We can assume God brought more to the church, and the Spirit continued to work there. Paul is now away from them. He is 4,000 miles away from this group of people that he loves so dearly. And he writes them now. It's likely around four years later after that uh, those conversions there in Acts 16, Paul writes to encourage them to be humble, Christ-centered people for the sake of unity, that they might come together and walk in a, chapter 1, verse 27, a gospel-worthy manner. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, Paul says there. And there likely is conflict, this unity going on in the church. In chapter 4, he mentions the, the two ladies there in conflict. And he's seeking to motivate them to be gospel-centered, to live in light of what Christ has done in Christ's humility, and to let Christ's humility affect them, and, and to spur them on to unity and to a gospel-worthy uh, lifestyle. Paul writes also to update them because they're wondering what's going on with Paul and Timothy. And so he updates them, even starting in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2. Also, they're concerned about Epaphroditus and his health. And so this is really a very warm personal letter by a pastor updating them on the state of other people. And I want to look at one passage. So this is one unit of thought here. Um, and it really is a pastoral update. You got an update today. And so Paul gives them an update on himself because they are concerned about Paul. You know, I think all of us would be concerned about Paul. I mean, there was never a dull moment in the ministry of Paul. 
He would go to one city and they'd run him out of that city. He'd go to the next city and the Jews would try to stone him. And on it goes. Riots would form wherever Paul was. The Jews didn't like him in Jerusalem. He wasn't liked in many places. He even had to escape through a basket in order to uh, survive. So Paul is always going through difficult times in his ministry. And these people love him and are concerned about him. And so he writes to update them. And this is a passage that I return to often, uh, and I rehearse in my mind often, because it helps us to see more clearly the way Paul saw clearly that God is working in the midst of our hardships and in the midst of our limitations. So it's very practical for us. And he's writing them from prison. And he's writing here, a, a, giving them a clear Christ-centered perspective on his own situation. And he wants them to see how he sees. And it's interesting that, and this is good for us to be reminded of, an apostle is suffering. They weren't exempt from that. Paul had the ability by the Spirit to perform the miraculous He had great knowledge of the Word of God. Uh, He had revelations from God. He was caught up to the third heaven according to the end of 2 Corinthians. If you look through the book of Acts, the Spirit would direct Paul directly. He had many privileges, and yet he was not exempt from suffering and from difficulty and from severe suffering, maybe even more so than the rest of the apostles experienced. So an apostle, an official representative of the risen Christ, yes, he also experienced limitations in life like you do. And he's going to say it's working for good. The gospel is behind bars, but that does not stop the gospel. In fact, it only works to advance it, is what he's going to argue. Let's read the passage here. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So we find here three purposes that God is accomplishing through your hardships. And the context here certainly is persecution, that God is accomplishing his purposes in and through Paul in the midst of persecution, but I believe this applies to all issues in your life, not only to persecution, but to the trials of your life, the hardships, the limitations, the times when God stops you in your tracks and seems to prevent you from doing what you're called to do or what you want to do, including a man who is a missionary. We have missionaries right now in Ukraine who have 
pause, have, have their work paused. But God is still working. Well, here's the first purpose of what God is accomplishing. Number one, your hardship is God's means to advancing your Savior's glory. Your hardship is God's means, or your limitation is God's means to advancing your Savior's glory. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's a powerful sentence, isn't it? And I'm sure comforting for these believers in Philippi to hear that. And Paul begins with thanksgivings and introductions and praises in chapter 1, as he normally does in his letters. And they're probably wondering, what's going on, Paul? And so he gets to it quickly in verse 12 here. God is advancing the glory and the proclamation of Jesus Christ He's advancing his gospel message even behind bars. Jesus said, remember Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And we see that actually working out here. We see the truth that he's going to build his church no matter what. Nobody can resist God. And, And only a God who's absolutely sovereign in all things is able to say, I will build my church, and even the gates of hell shall not prevail. Nothing can stop the advancement of Christ and the gospel. Absolutely nothing. And what's Paul's limitation here? Well, it's prison. That's a severe limitation in life. And think about it for a moment, about Paul. It's prison for a man who travels all the time. He's constantly on the road with the gospel. He's moving from one country, country to another. He says in the early 1 Corinthians, he doesn't want to build on someone else's ministry. He's not going to build on, some, on Apollos or whoever it might be. He wants to go somewhere that hasn't heard the gospel. I mean, Paul was, a, by the power of the Spirit, a courageous man. Uh, he was bold and brave. And yet now he can't go anywhere. He's stuck now. He can probably move a foot or two, and that's the extent of his movement. He's confined. He's experiencing significant limitation now, unable to move and go where he wants. And Paul had all kinds of plans. His ultimate plan was to go to Spain, to go far west to Spain. And these were all good plans, right? These are all Paul had good, gospel-worthy plans. Not only is he imprisoned, but he would be chained to a Roman soldier. And not only that, but with the daily uncertainty that he's even going to survive the next day, that he might be executed at any time. Every day for Paul would be an uncertain day, but isn't that true for us? Isn't it true that every day is uncertain? Jesus says each day has enough trouble of its own. It's true. Some days seem to have more trouble than others, but we really don't know what each day might bring. But Paul lived with the reality that he possibly faced execution there in prison. With short-sighted vision, it certainly seems if he's limited, 
that this can't work for good, can it, Lord? The gospel is limited. The apostle to the Gentiles is no longer able to move to the Gentile countries. Uh, the future of the gospel might seem uncertain. Uh, and I, I wrote here earlier in the week, we cannot afford to lose Paul. We can't afford to lose him. And now what are we saying to ourselves? We can't afford to lose Terry. And maybe you've experienced that. We can't afford to lose this brother or sister in Christ. What are we going to do when they're not here? It all first appears a limitation, though, a roadblock, a wall, and unhelpful in every way. But what seems difficult to us, what we think a, a limitation for God a genuine hindrance to the ministry is no hindrance to God at all. In fact, it's the very means, it's the very vehicle by which God is going to advance the glory of Jesus Christ. I've often reflected on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, especially the last year, to trust in the Lord with all your heart, to lean not in your own understanding, to acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make straight your paths. Uh, as if that's like Solomon is defining what the fear of the Lord is in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord means to trust in the Lord with all your heart. The fear of the Lord means that you don't lean on your own wisdom. Rather, you acknowledge God in everything in life. You, you seek to live out his will and to be aware of his presence. And Paul certainly lived that way. And, and this kind of prison is an occasion to do so, to trust in the Lord. The Lord is at work. It, our understanding cannot grasp all that God is doing. I think it was Spurgeon that said, you, you will not be able to see clearly the providences of God and what he is doing. I know we like to assume we get it. Oh, this is what God's up to. I know God's doing this. We really don't know. <laughs> Maybe one day all that will be revealed to us but God is always at work. It's often far beyond what we could possibly imagine. But we are to trust in the Lord. And God continues to work, yes, even from a dark dungeon. And especially from a dark dungeon. You have to remember, this is what God likes. God doesn't always convert the famous musicians and athletes and actors of the world. And, and they're not always the ones to herald the good news. We think to ourselves, if, if only this person would come to Christ. God likes to work in the most impossible kinds of situations, using the most limitations here, a prison. And Paul is soon uh, into his letter to exhort them to be Christ-like in their humility, and he relieves them here by saying, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the Gospels. God is still at work, Paul says. And his limitation now is serving to advance the gospel in a whole new context. And Paul is delighted to tell them the good news about the good news, that it's still moving, yes, even behind bars. It reveals to us that hardship in the Christian life has a purpose. God is seeking to advance his own name and glory through all of that. And I think we also see the wisdom of God, that God in his wisdom has seen it fit to use a prison to restrict an apostle who is so zealous for God 
that he might accomplish even more. God uses in his wisdom the darkest of situations, the most limited context by which to glorify himself. There's been people in history that have had great wisdom. Daniel, according to Daniel 5, verse 14, his wisdom, it says here he possessed excellent wisdom. And King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 30, it says, his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the people of Egypt. Even the queen of Ethiopia had to visit him to see, is this truly the case? And she said it was. How remarkable is the wisdom of Solomon? But nothing compares to the wisdom of God. It far exceeds all of us. So much so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of the world is folly to God. And he says even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So God's wisdom is far beyond what we can imagine. This is why we must not lean on our own understanding. The 17th century Puritan George Swinnock said this, as for the matter of God's knowledge, he is incomparable. He knows all things. He knows what was, what is, what will be, what can be, and what cannot be. He knows all substances, qualities, and contingents. He creates, upholds, governs, and discerns everything. And in his infinitely extensive knowledge and wisdom, everything works to God's advantage. He uses everything. And he doesn't live like we do. We're going through each day trying our best to use what we can to our advantage. We we have a lot of ignorance. We learn new things. We're, We're flying by the seat of our pants often. Thankfully, God is not flying by the seat of his pants. He knows all things. He's governing all things. What comfort there is in that. This is why in Acts you have, in Acts 16, Paul and Silas can sing in prison. They get this. They understand, oh, God's still at work. We don't need to worry about this. He's accomplishing his will. He not only ordains the ends, he ordains the means to the ends. Now Paul says this, verse 13, It has, speaking here of the gospel, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So guess what? Paul says, yes, I'm in prison, but look at what God is doing in my hardship and my extreme limitation. The gospel is moving around now amongst the Roman soldiers. This is great. So much so, he says, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and I love what he says there, and to all the rest. Who's the rest? I don't know. It's been known to a lot of people. Why Paul is there? Why is Paul here? Did he kill someone? Did he commit treason? Oh, no, he's here for the gospel. He proclaims this crucified Messiah has risen, and he's willing to give his life for this. Now there's discussion amongst the whole imperial guard. The imperial guard, interesting, is the Roman soldiers that guarded the emperor. So these are kind of the marines of the soldiers. They are the the elite group that the emperor chose to surround himself there at headquarters with. Um, Some 9,000 troops there based right around Caesar and they were his best. They received double pay. 
They received double benefits. Uh, They were the greatest of the Roman soldiers, an extreme fighting force, kind of like our present-day special forces. Uh, These were seriously tough guys. And Paul is chained to one all the time. Isn't that great? Talk about torture, not for Paul, but for the Roman soldiers. You can't get away from him. It's, It's just truly remarkable. God attaches an apostle to each Roman soldier. Uh, They say that each Roman soldier would have a six-hour shift. So as soon as one is done with Paul, after six hours, in moves another. And you can know what Paul's doing. It's a lot of time to talk. There's only so much chit-chat. And they're hearing about Paul. Why are you here? What brought you? What got you in prison? Well, there's an open door. The gospel is advancing in prison behind bars. What is your limitation? Maybe it is persecution. Maybe you have family who has drawn the line and said, your faith in Christ is unacceptable. Maybe an unbelieving spouse. Maybe a recurring health problem, which can be a literal limitation. Maybe major life responsibilities that you just have been given. There's nothing you can do about them. Maybe you feel like you're in prison. And you think to yourself, well, Lord, why are you limiting me? There's so many more things I can do. But friends, God is still at work. In you and through you in your situation, Paul didn't even know if he would live one more day but he took advantage of it. And the gospel continued to move. And he encourages the Philippians here, his concerned friends, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Let me give you a second purpose. What God is doing and accomplishing in your limitations, in your hardships. Secondly, your hardships is, are God's means to building others up in the faith. So the limitations and the hardships you experience, God is not only working on you, he is likely working on other people in your life. Now let me pause for a moment. Um, It's important to address this. Uh, Sometimes there's a misunderstanding that every time we go through a trial of some kind that God is punishing us, Uh, that For every difficulty we experience in life, some have thought that it is an immediate response by God to our sin, Uh, as if we have stepped out of the will of God, we're in sin, and God is now disciplining us by putting a trial in our life. Now, it is true, sometimes that's exactly what he does. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines his own sons, his children. He can do that in a variety of ways. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11, that's why some of them were sick, because they had fallen into sin. But I want to tell you, not every trial you experience in your life is God disciplining you for sinning. That's not always the case. That's often not the case. In fact, you may be struggling because you are in God's will, because you are being faithful to the Lord. The example of Job, right? 
Job is to be this righteous man according to Job chapter 1. It's precisely because he is that God allows Satan to harm him and his family. Paul's suffering here, I I don't see any reason to say it's corrective, although God is going to use it, as I'm going to argue in a minute. He's, He's working on Paul, but he's actually placed Paul here in a context of suffering and limitation as a vehicle to transport the good news to others. And we were, six of us went to a conference in Kentucky this week, so if we look exhausted, and that's probably why. It was a great conference, lots of speakers, sermons, lectures, encouraging time. Some eight to 10,000 people were there. And we took, ta- you know, these Ubers. We took a, a, a cars around. People would pick us up. And, and I, I observed a lot of evangelism. You know, there, we're stuck in the car, and there's 10 minutes, whatever, and this Uber driver is going to hear the gospel. Because we got faithful brothers and uh, an encouraging time, and a vehicle, a vehicle to transport the gospel. The Uber driver driver didn't know that picking us up. This is going to be a car that transports the gospel. And that's exactly what's going on here. This prison now is a new headquarters for the gospel. God may be currently placing you in a severe limitation or difficulty to move his gospel, but Paul is saying something else. He's using hardships here in your life to build up the faith of other people. Look at verse 14. He says, and most of the brothers, here's more news, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Oh, here's something else Paul tells them. Now there are brothers that are even more courageous with the gospel. Who would have thunk? Who would have thought that would be a result of Paul being placed in prison? Certainly not what I would expect. It's another good out of the evil that others are now more confident in the Lord's work. We might might expect the opposite, right? Uh, They have taken out in, in, in the battle, they've taken out one of our best. Maybe that's reason to be afraid. Maybe the troops shouldn't go up the hill now because one of our best is taken. But it's the very opposite. They have more confidence now. Now they have more courage, and they're bolder to speak the word. Notice what he says, without fear. Wow. This is the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the grace of God. The intention of the apostolic imprisonment would not only be to stop Paul, but to frighten Christians, right? We're not only going to stop this apostle, uh, but the thinking could be we, would, we might frighten the rest of these Christians, or as they were called Nazarenes in the beginning because they followed Jesus of Nazareth. We want to quiet these radical missionaries. We're going to do so by getting Paul. But the very opposite happens. It excites them. It strengthens them. It makes them brave Christ proclaimers. It's kind of like Caesar dropped his bomb on his own headquarters. You know, it just, the plane didn't get beyond headquarters, accidentally dropped, and now, boom, the gospel has exploded in and around Caesar. 
Now there are more zealous Christians. Sometimes we really get concerned about not just trials, but about persecution. But God uses that in our life. He makes more zealous Christians. He strengthens the church through it. Confinement has created confidence, fearlessness, gospel advancement. And so, friends, God in his marvelous wisdom places Paul in prison because he's working on other people. And he changes other people, other workers of the gospel. And Paul even says most of the brothers. It's had a radical effect here. Have you thought about the fact that one of the main reasons, maybe the main reason why God has placed you in the context of suffering or hardship is not about you, but it's about working on someone in your life who's watching you, who's watching you go through that hardship. God may be placing you there to work on them. And I know our tendency, it's my tendency, is I'm just, I just want to pray it away. Lord, not just in my own life, but the lives of others. Please take this hardship away. Please take this trial away. Make them better. Make things easier. And we can and should pray those things. We, we love each other. We should be honest with the Lord. We don't want anyone going through hard times. But we have to be careful there that we have to remind ourselves God has a reason for the trials that we experience. So unbelievers are impacted. You have the soldiers there receiving the gospel, but believers are also being impacted by being edified and built up and encouraged, in, in its right definition, encouraged. Others are particularly motivated to godly living when they see a suffering brother or sister who in the midst of their trial are trusting in God and making the most of it. I mean, how often have you been strengthened? I mean, I think I get spoiled because I get to, I get to go to hospitals all, and see people struggling. They're encouraging me. They're strengthening me. I don't know how much good I'm doing for them. And I know you've experienced that at some point. Maybe many times you've seen someone suffering and you're going to minister to them and they really minister to you, don't they? It affects you by how they're handling their trial. How often are God's people strengthened by seeing someone else faithfully and cheerfully handling their trial, especially something like persecution? And it significantly impacts the rest of the church. Sometimes a church is woken up by one of their members suffering. Again, this is what I wrote earlier in the week. It it wakes us up. Rob mentioned this morning, it it reminds us to count our days, to be sober-minded, It excites our love, too, for each other. It mobilizes believers to pray when maybe we've been apathetic in our prayer life. I mean, you say, well, Lord, it would be great if you just directly worked on that person. I don't have to be part of that process. (laughs) There's got to be other ways here than using me and my suffering to work on them. Just go straight to them. You can do that. He could, but he chooses not to do that. Do you have to place me in limitations to work on someone else? That's, yes, that's God's plan. It's good to keep that in mind when we're in the midst of a trial. Maybe God has turned the heat up in your own life so that others may get a glimpse of your Christ-like attitude. It'd be convicting, I know. That's why I just said that. 
How is your attitude in the midst of limitations of life and hardships? Yes, you are an example to other believers in your life. That should spur us on to seek to honor the Lord in the midst of our hardship. Even Paul's suffering is helping us, isn't it? Even though it's 2,000 years later. Do not underestimate what God is doing in your hardships. You may not know why or it may not see the effects of what he's doing, but God is at work. He's advancing the glory of Christ and the gospel in the midst of our hardships, but he's also building up others in the faith and strengthening others in the faith as they observe the hardship we endure. Let me give you one more purpose here of what God is doing in the midst of our hardships. Number three, your hardship is God's means to helping you to treasure Christ above all else. Your hardship is God's means to helping you to treasure Christ above all else. This is really an amazing section, verse 15. Paul's not done. Here's, here's more of the update. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Wow, there are, there are two kinds of preachers, Paul says. There are two kinds of missionaries. There are those with good, pure motives who are preaching the gospel. And then there are those with evil motives who are also preaching the gospel. And there's nothing here what Paul says to imply that those bad gospel preachers have a wrong gospel. In fact, it sounds like, from what we can discern, they had a right gospel. Their good news was accurate. The problem was their motivations for preaching the gospel and doing the work of the ministry. Telling us what? We can do ministry with wrong motives. We can do it for wrong reasons. We can preach the right gospel, the right content. We can do ministry in the church or in the community by doing it for the wrong reasons, uh, maybe out of self-promotion, maybe, as it seems here, out of jealousy or envy. Uh, someone else is doing well in the ministry. Uh, their gifts are being used and becoming aware within the church or in the community, and a temptation can be to be jealous of what's going on rather than to rejoice with those who rejoice. Seeing someone else's success in ministry These men preached Christ, but the motivation, Paul says, was to make his life more difficult. That seems a strange thing, doesn't it? I'm going to preach the gospel to make John MacArthur's life miserable. It's a little hard to fathom, but that's essentially what they were doing. They want to look good, They don't want Paul looking good. They had something against Paul. And they're not sincere. He he says here twice, speaking of them, they're proclaiming out of rivalry, not sincerely, 
thinking to afflict him, and then whether in pretense or in truth. These people are not as they appear. They're going around with the missionary work, but they're not really who they seem to be, Paul says. And it all is coming upon Paul, getting Paul in trouble, getting Paul back in prison, making his life more difficult. And I love this. When Paul is hit, nothing bad comes out of Paul. You know, when, when you're hit by a trial in your life, I uh, remember the illustration Dr. John Street used years ago about a cup of water, and you have a cup of water and somebody bumps you and the water comes out. The reason the water came out is not really because someone bumped you, because, but because there's water in the cup. In other words, there are, there are issues in our heart that come out when we go through a trial. Uh, our sinful desires are exposed when we go through a hard time. But when Paul is hit, you don't see the works of the flesh here. You don't see anything bad coming out. When he's attacked, he doesn't retaliate. When he's abused, he's treated unfairly. When others attempt to make his life harder, instead of complaining, what does Paul do? He praises the Lord. It's just like he and Silas singing in the prison. I mean, you you, you treat them unfairly, and goodness comes out of them. Our hearts are so easily and sometimes quickly revealed, they're revealed to us when we are treated unjustly. It's not always pretty what we see on the inside when others attack us. But God uses others in our life and trials in general. Yes, others who treat us unfairly or who might persecute us for our faith. God uses that in order to work on us. So again, a God is accomplishing a lot of things at the same time, not just with Paul and his situation, but with us in our own life. He's working on us. He's using hardships, limitations, persecutions, even insincere, obstinate people in your life to work on you so that you are stripped of self-glory and self-concern, and the only thing that remains is what remained in Paul, is that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know what? Okay, I'm in a difficult situation. Christ is proclaimed. Yeah, they're not doing it for the right motives, but they're proclaiming Christ, the gospel spreading. And that's Paul's perspective. Very interesting. And maybe Paul would have the right to say, yeah, How dare they? What do they think they're doing? I'm an apostle. But rather, he rejoices in what God is still doing. And and this shows, again, more of the extent of God's sovereignty. He's using missionaries with wrong motives to still carry out the gospel. If, through my hardship here, verse 18... Christ is known, exalted, or proclaimed, then I'm joyful, then I can rejoice. I'm good with that. Yeah, my life's more difficult. That's okay. Souls are being saved. The Lord's at work. He's building his church. Trials certainly reveal our hearts. Do they not? Others in your life reveal your heart. And then God uses trials to reconfigure your heart, to reshape it. Because in God's wisdom, they are means to conform your heart more into the likeness 
of Jesus Christ. Trials are means to strip you of your pride, of your self-reliance, and get you to the point where what John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And John was good with that. Even if I'm forgotten, that's okay as long as Christ is known. Paul is shaken, and what falls out is not a complaining attitude. It's not a, that's not fair attitude, but a rejoicing that Christ is still being proclaimed. Paul isn't concerned about himself. This is what's so amazing about Paul. I mean, there's a lot of amazing things about Paul. But he just isn't concerned about himself. You know, Lord, help us to, to get closer to that. He treasures Christ above all else, including his own freedom, including his health, including his comforts. And then on top of that, he's writing the Philippians, concerned about them. How is that possible? This is what God's grace does in your life. You can be in prison and be concerned about other people. And that's what Paul is. He really loves the fellow believers, and he's concerned about them in the midst of everything he's going through. And he treasures Christ. God uses all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. He's wisely reshaping our hearts, reconfiguring them to be Christ-centered rather than self-centered. That's why later in chapter 2, he says, have this mind among yourselves which is in Christ Jesus. We have to... We have to have a different mindset. Uh, We have to have our minds renewed and have to have humble others considering hearts like Christ did. And God is using the limitations and the hardships to accomplish this. Paul wants the Philippians to see their hardships and all they experience very differently than they have. Likely the Philippians are experiencing persecution. He wants them to see like he does that God is using all of that. Christ's name is being advanced. Others are being built up through our own experiences, and our hearts are being reshaped to be like Christ. Friends, make right interpretations of God's dealings with you. Make right interpretations of God's dealings with you in your life. He loves you. And he has a purpose for all that you go through. John Flavel, the Puritan, helps to bring this home. He wrote, It would much support thy heart under adversity to consider that God, by such humbling providences, may be accomplishing that for which you have long prayed and waited. And should you be troubled at that? Maybe the trial you're experiencing in your life right now is actually an answer to a prayer that you prayed. Though you do not see the connection, God may be answering your prayer. We have to trust him. He is still at work. The apostle may be behind bars. The gospel may be behind bars, but it's not imprisoned. The gospel continues to spread. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that your word is timely. 
Lord, as even as we say farewell to a, a brother in Christ who is with you in your presence, uh, Lord, we would want him here longer, but it's your will to take him home. Lord, your plan is far greater than our plan. Uh, Lord, we admit it's hard at times to submit to your providence and your will. Lord, would you help us to be strengthened in your word? Please, Lord, even to see the Apostle Paul, who was gospel optimistic in the midst of prison, chained to a soldier, not knowing if he'd live to the next day. He could see God at work, and he knew God continued to work. Lord, help us to have that kind of clear perspective. Lord, we pray, and we pray that your name and your honor would be advanced and you be glorified. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, you know, just just occurred to me at the very end of the letter, I love what Paul says. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. God's at work. 